0: You're listening to audio from Restoration Church. If you enjoyed the message and would like to get connected with our church, follow us on social media at Restoration Cambridge and our website, restoration-church.ca. Send us a message. We would love to hear from you. As everyone knows, it's been a really strange year. And that was made evident to me just this past weekend because technically I graduated from seminary. Now, that's not to uh, initiate some sort of congratulations for me. Uh, But the strange thing was, of course, it was completely online. It wasn't in person at all. And I completely forgot about it. My family and I decided to go out on a hike with the kids. And while I was out there, someone from my church texted me Uh, almost like a congratulations for graduating seminary. And I was like, Oh yeah. Seven years of culmination. I just completely forgot about now it was online. So I was able to watch it after and everything like that. But uh, really the only thing I was looking for was, did I win any awards? (laughs) I know that sounds extremely vain and it, Likely is, but no, I kind of knew going into it. I wasn't going to win any awards and it kind of reminded me of little leagues back when I was a kid and I think I was in about grade three or four and on the baseball team. And this is a completely unbiased opinion, but I was the best player on the team. Okay. Uh, Completely unbiased opinion from myself, but I was the best player on the team and at the end of the year, they all three met every team, every year, as long as I can remember, there was three medals. There was the most sportsmanlike, there was the most improved, and of course, there was the most valuable player. And when it was time to announce the most valuable player, the most uh, honorable award that a grade three boy could probably win on a baseball team, they are about to announce it and they gave a big introduction. It was probably about five seconds, but for me, it seemed like a big introduction. I was fully prepared To win this award. In fact, I think I was almost halfway up to the coach. Ready to receive the MVP award. And they said the most valuable player. And I still remember this name because it haunts me. But. Most valuable player. Jordan Ray. Well, that's not. That's not Aaron Ottaway. That's, That's a different name. And I was completely thrown for a loop. Uh. Because I thought, I deserve this award. I, I'm the best player on this team. You know, I've tried my best. Uh, I don't even know if they kept track of batting averages or anything like that. But, you know, I was I was the starting shortstop. I was a good defensive player. I'm the best player on this team. I deserve this award. And I was immediately floored and a little bit angry uh, because something that I expected, something that I thought I deserved just didn't happen. That might be a trite example for where, where I'm actually going today. But the point of, of, of the passage that we're looking at is this. This is a truth that's evident from God's word. That those who think that they deserve favor from God are the ones who often don't get it. Those who think that they deserve God's favor are the ones who don't receive it. Or if I could put it this way, those who try to earn it tend to actually lose it. So let's take a look at, we're, we're going through our series through the Gospel of John called Redefining Religion. And I'm going to be in Luke chapter 4 this morning. So if you do have a Bible, you can turn there or you can just listen to me. Luke chapter 4, I'm starting at verse 14 and I'm going down to verse 30. So Jesus is really beginning his public ministry here, and you're going to get that sense from verse 14 and 15. It says this, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, which is a region uh, in the north part of Israel, and a report about him went through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So Jesus is trending upwards in our modern vernacular. doesn't say specifically what happened. There's other gospels that reveal what happened, but but he was healing people, is preaching. Word about him is starting to spread. And it says in verse 16, he came to Nazareth, of course, which was his hometown where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, not just his custom, but many customs, that he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And he reads this from Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. So as we've been going through this series, Redefining Religion, and as I mentioned last week, everyone has this different concept of what it means to be religious. We have Jesus here as he begins his public ministry, this man who who, his, his, his fame, his report had been spreading throughout the countryside, and now he returns home and he's in a synagogue, which is not too unlike what we do uh, on Sundays or whether you meet on Saturdays at church, which which the custom was, of course, there's a place of worship where the people who are going to worship God and they open up the Bible and their custom, like Jesus, like it says in here, there's nothing different about this. They would stand to read God's word and he read from Isaiah 61 and then they would sit to actually preach from it. And many... Pastors do that still today. We stand to read God's word and then we sit back down to actually hear the preaching of it. And so there's nothing unordinary about that. That was the custom. And it's something that even still today, 2000 years later, those of you who grown up, grew up in church, that's something you are accustomed to as well. But you so you can kind of picture the scene, this man who'd been trending throughout the countryside. You know, he's in all these surrounding towns in this region of Galilee, uh, in places like Capernaum, where he's, you know, preaching like a lot of people have never heard preached. He's he's doing miracles and now he returns home. And there's a level of cynicism. You know, this is Nazareth where he'd been brought up by a father who's a carpenter. And, uh, you know, just normal people is his mom and dad. And... He comes back home and there's this level of cynicism. You know what I'm talking about where no matter how many amazing things you do in life, the people that are going to be the most cynical are the people that have known you the longest, the people that you grew up with. I'm always afraid when someone joins my church and says, oh, yeah, I know them. And and they, and it's someone that I knew when I was young or when I was in high school or college. And you're like, oh, shoot. What are they going to say about me when I grew up, right? All the stupid things that I had done. Because the people that are least impressed by you, the people that have known you the longest, they're like, yeah, he's not that impressive. You know, people tend to be more impressed with you the less they know you. And so there's this level of cynicism. Uh, as it can be made out in verse 23 when it says, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we heard you do in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. What essentially that saying is when he says, physician, heal yourself, it was this saying that's like, if you want to prove yourself to be a doctor, well, well, prove, let me prove it, right? Let's see it. Uh, Heal yourself first and then, then we'll trust you. So there was this sense of, you know, all these things we've heard, seeing is believing here. So prove yourself from the things that we've actually heard. So there's a level of cynicism. However, there's still people want to hear what he's going to say. This celebrity who's now returned home. So here he is and he's at the synagogue on the Sabbath day with with the people. and He takes a scroll. There's nothing weird about that. He takes a scroll of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, which we, we can still read today. And I don't know if they gave him these verses to read and then he was to speak on them or... Or, or this was something that he had planned himself. It doesn't really say, but he unrolls the scroll. I guess in the passage, he says he finds the place where it was written. So it seems like Jesus purposely went there in Isaiah 61. Stands up and reads these words. Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and then he sits back down there's nothing weird about this this happened every sabbath day but the passage he chooses is really interesting um it's a really really important passage and and it talks about well this is what jesus was anointed to do this is what jesus was called to do by god to proclaim good news to to the poor Liberty to captives, sight to the blind, liberty to the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that specifically refers to this Old Testament thing called the year of jubilee. I don't think I've heard the word jubilee. We don't talk about the jubilee very often in church. I think the last time I heard the word jubilee was in uh, one of the verses of uh, that old chorus, the days of Elijah. and But he's referring to the year of jubilee. That's what the year of the Lord's favor is. And what the year of jubilee was, it was... It was, uh, it was this thing that God had established in his people right from the beginning. Like, this is how you are to... Uh, society is supposed to function. And every 50 years was this year of Jubilee. And what happened on the year of Jubilee was that all debts had to be forgiven. All slaves had to be freed. Even land itself rested from its work and healed. That's what happened for, at the year of jubilee. It was almost like a societal reset. You know, when things go awry in your phone, or maybe you have too many things, or you have too many apps, or you know, whatever is going on in your phone is not working correctly. You can do a factory reset, and it starts fresh from scratch. That's that's almost like what the year of jubilee was. It was a factory reset of society, and we've we've heard this concept a lot this past summer uh, in talking about some of the things I've you know, that have been going on for years in our culture. We've heard this word privilege a lot. And and the year of Jubilee, interestingly enough, was this governor on privilege. So if there's one group of people or one person taking advantage of another person or, or one group of people taking advantage of another group of people in 50 years, all of that was abolished. And everyone is almost like was, was, was brought back to the starting blocks. Maybe I shouldn't put it, as a factory reset, but the church that our church name is restoration church. And the year of Jubilee was really a restoration for God's intention for what society was actually supposed to look like. When things went awry every 50 years, they would be restored. That's the year of the Lord's favor. And it gave families who had been mistreated or underprivileged It gave them hope that at the year of Jubilee that that would be abolished. That's the year of the Lord's favor in all levels of individuality and then society. Then Jesus rolls up this scroll. So this is not a passage that they wouldn't have known. They, They would have known about the year of Jubilee. In fact, they would have been hoping in the year of Jubilee for God's favor to come down upon them. So Jesus rolls up this scroll, sits down and says every eye is fixed on him. It's glued to what is this man going to say? You know, this, this man who's we've heard a lot about, but now he's here in the flesh. And he reads this really hopeful, these really hopeful verses. It's almost like, you know, if you have a favorite preacher, you finally go to a conference. And there he is in the flesh. And you're fixed on him. What is he going to say? he doesn't say something, he doesn't tell a joke. He didn't start his preaching because now he's going to expound on what Isaiah 61 says. He doesn't tell a joke. He doesn't like do what I did, which was tell some childhood story, which would have been great. This is his hometown. You think you should tell a childhood story. (laughs) Jesus doesn't do that though. He says something really simply in verse 21. He says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What a declaration. God's favor, the restoration of all things has come down to earth. It's seemingly through him. I mean, what, a, what an amazing declaration. And the people are excited about it. It says they speak well of him. Like they're turning to each other. Dude, you, you hearing this guy? This is amazing. This is what we've always wanted to hear. You know, this is what we've been hoping for. And 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 they're, and they're and they're like, preach, preach, brother. I mean, this is this is this is amazing stuff. It's not like that boring preacher we had last week. Like, this guy knows what he's doing, and they speak well of him, and they're like, Is this Joseph's son? Joseph, good on you, man. You raised a good one. This is like our hometown hero here, come home. And everyone's saying amen, clapping along. However, uh, the crazy thing, they speak well of him. Is this not Joseph's son? This is is incredible. It takes uh, one paragraph. (laughs) And not a really long one. It takes one paragraph to go from pat on the back, good sermon pastor, good sermon to a murderous mob ready to throw this man off of a cliff I mean that is no pun intended quite a jump one paragraph to go from good sermon pastor to a murderous mob it's it's kind of crazy However, the reaction, even though to us reading and probably to everyone there was completely unexpected, Jesus doesn't seem to be unfazed or not unexpected. Somehow at the end, he, he gets out of it, and it's not really, we're not really sure how, but this reaction was not unexpected by him. In fact, before he begins his, what he's going to say, he says in verse 24, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. So he puts himself in the shoes of the prophets, and the prophets were throughout history, even in, in God's people, especially in God's people, were persecuted and even put to death uh, for simply telling the truth. In fact, throughout history, telling the truth is one of the most dangerous things that you can possibly do. It's a dangerous gig to tell the truth. And that's what the prophets understood was that if I tell the truth, if I expose things that people don't want exposed. My life, my very life is in danger. And Many were actually killed for telling the truth. So what is he actually saying to them? It's, it, it, it's, it's really simple. It's actually really simple. Because all he's going to do is tell the truth. He's going to expose things that people don't want exposed. But the ramifications of, of it are not as simple. So in verse 25, as I said, it says, but in truth. So here it is. Here it comes. Here it comes. I tell you, this is not going to be pretty. Everyone knows these things are true, but no one, it's like the elephant in the room. No one actually wants to reveal them. So he says this in verse 20, uh, 25 down to 27. All he's going to do is he's going to give two historical events that are documented in the Bible. So these people were Bible, like they knew their Old Testament, there's documented in the Bible, there's nothing that they would not have known. That happened to two actual prophets. The first one is in 1 Kings 17, if you want to if you want to look there. Second one is in 2 Kings chapter five. But he says this in verse 25, but in truth I tell you, there were many widows in, the, in Israel in the days of Elijah, which was a prophet, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. So this famine was no. Like, this was a historical thing that knew, like this is a, quite a famine. For three and a half years, Israel had to uh, uh, go through a crazy famine. Many people died, Many obviously many husbands and then widows died. And so there's a lot of widows that, that starved to death. It was a horrible, horrible event. Everyone knows about this famine. Not only that, even though they know about the famine, there's there's also a, a little awkward detail that's actually recorded in the Bible in 1st Kings 17 that they would have known about but no one wants to bring up because it says this, there's a great famine and then it says in verse 26, Elijah was sent to none of them, none of the widows of Israel, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a wi- to a, a woman who was a widow. So what happened was in verse 1st ki- 1st Kings chapter 17, uh, all of these people were Uh, 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 you know, there was great famine and and God actually calls Elijah to go to this certain widow to ask for bread and it's recorded in 1 Kings 17 that he goes to this woman and the awkward part is this is not in Israel. He goes to the north of Israel to a a place called Zarephath in in the region of Sidon which Sidon was north of Israel in modern day Lebanon and he asked this woman for for bread and she's picking up sticks and he's like, what are you picking up sticks for? And this really, really heart-wrenching where she says, I'm actually going to start a fire and it's to prepare my last meal before my son and I die. Like that, that's how bad, that's how bad they were starving to death. And so Elijah goes to their house and God grants favor upon this woman and her boy in that the, the flour and the oil that she made, that she used to make cake or bread Never actually ran out. So that little bit she had, she could use every single day to make more bread. It never ran out. And so she was able to survive this crazy hard famine. And not only that, in the very next in the very next passage, her boy ends up dying. And Elijah prays to God for favor upon that house. And God grants it and raises the boy from the dead. God's favor was upon them. But the awkward part was she was not a part of the people of god now we can take pity on a widow and anyone can you know whether they're a foreign widow or not but the second one is even a little bit more not a little bit but a lot more hard to accept it says this and there were many lepers in israel and in, in the time of the prophet elisha so elisha was elijah's successor in second kings chapter 5 in that obviously in that time and still in in when he's writing, leprosy was a feared disease, and many people. This is going to sound familiar. Were actually kept outside the city in a, in quarantine because they were afraid of catching the disease. But it says this, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Now here's here's the deal. This was not a poor destitute widow. We're talking about Naaman was a commander of an enemy army in in the nation of Syria. And Naaman actually, what he does is his army. Raids Israelite cities, Israelite camps, and and there's an account that's found in Second Kings chapter five, where uh, Naaman raids this place, kills the family, uh, but takes a slave girl back, and she's she's his. Uh, so uh, not a good man. <laughs> like this man, this man doesn't deserve help, and yet in that he he gets leprosy. And it's this little Israelite girl that actually says, "Hey, if you contact elisha who who was known to God to work through him and do miracles, if you contact elisha, he might actually heal and and so." Uh what he Naaman does, he's so desperate, even though he doesn't deserve help, he's so desperate that he writes to the king of Israel and says, Can 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 I talk to this man or can you send Elisha the prophet to heal me? And of course, what do you think the king of Israel is gonna do? Not a chance are we gonna help you. You do not deserve it. You do not deserve any help at all. However, Elisha hears about it and he grants help, and eventually Naaman, even begrudgingly, it's not even a, it's not even great, begrudgingly, is healed of his leprosy. God chooses to show him favor simply bringing up those two historical events that were recorded in the Bible that they knew about. Pairing it with Jesus bringing up the year of the Lord's favor. But you can see what he's doing here. He applies it to people that they would not expect, nor would they choose, nor would they deserve. And this enraged them so much they were willing to kill him. I just want to kind of say this as a side because I think this is connected. Because I, I think that as I was meditating on this passage, this this kind of hit me, and it's something I'm uh, concerned about in, in our day. And it's something called tribalism. And when we apply that in in our circles, and tribalism, we talk about tribalism in churches and Christianity. It's really, this it's it's the belief that God's favor rested on rests on us as a people to the exclusion of all others, like. God is on our side and our brand and he is against everything else that looks different. And this can look a lot of different ways. I don't know how many times I've heard from different political parties that God is on our side and he is against your side. So God's favor rests on us as a political party and he's against you as a political party. Churches can look like this. Our brand of church is the only brand that God is actually pleased with. We are favorable to him and all other brands of church uh, uh, are not favorable, favorable to God. It can look in families. Like God is blessed and it shows favor to our family to the exclusion of all all other families. Like our way of doing things is the best way and God is pleased with it and he shows us favor. And that, that that's in a nutshell what tribalism is. And, and there's a couple marks of what that tribalism actually looks like. And one of them is this. And this is a softer way of saying that. One of the one of, one of ways that tribalism identifies is a lack of self-awareness and if I could see it stronger, it's a refusal to look in the mirror. It's it's you know, fist on fist on the pulpit, finger in the chest, truth, all truth, and very little humility. Very little humility. It's when you hear truth from God, you know, when you know truth from God, you tend to apply it harder to the other than to yourself that's why you see a lot in church and i've seen this even in my own life where some sins are elevated that the other struggles with while some sins are excused that our people struggle with it's not a big deal so truth is actually applied heavier to the other and excused to yourself it's like we're going to elevate some truth and willfully ignore the other i mean this happens and a lot of things in the news today, it's like we willfully ignore some parts of the truth, but elevate some other parts that fits our narrative. You see it in church as well. And it But here's here's the deal. When we know truth, we have to wrestle with it first ourselves. And every time I prepare a sermon, I really shouldn't be preaching it unless I've done the wrestling with it myself. And I should be, if anyone, if it's going to be applied hardest, it should be applied hardest to me, not to the other. So th- there's a lack of self-awareness. Secondly, there's an inability to work in the gray where everything is so polarized. There's no patience for processing. You know, people feel scared to ask hard questions, to wrestle with their faith because it's like, oh, you're not, you're not one of them, are you? are you? Are you with us or are you against us? And I think some of you listening have probably experienced that whether in churches or families where you're afraid to ask questions, you're afraid to wrestle, you're afraid to process because you think I'm going to be viewed as an outsider. And there's just no patience for that. So tribalism can look a lot like there's a lack of self-awareness, there's also an inability to work in the gray. And I just want to say this at Restoration Church. We are really striving to have a church that is safe for you to ask questions, for you to process your faith, for you to wrestle with the truth. And I think patience for that is a thriving Christian community. But this is why they were so upset. I mean, God, you're rescuing the wrong people. They believed favor was on us. as Like, we get the family discount. Do you not know who I am? Do you not know what my family is? My family's been coming to this church for years. Do you not know how much I've done, how much money we've given to this thing? Like we have the favor of God because of who I who I am from. But Jesus is pointing to this truth that there were going to be no special favors to earn God's favor and those who think they deserve it don't seem to get it. And guys, that sounds harsh, But honestly, it's simply called grace. It's just grace. See, when we're talking uh, what is religion, we're redefining religion. The foundation that we stand on in Christianity is that we believe in a gracious God. Those of you who have a background in church, you'll know this. The, the literal definition of grace is unmerited or, in my words, undeserved favor. And when we talk about grace and when we sing about grace, the adjectives that we usually use are, you know, the old hymn is marvelous grace or or your grace is enough or, of course, the adjective that's mostly used is this is amazing grace, but when These people were confronted with grace that was uncomfortable. It was enraging. Not amazing, but it was enraging grace. That sounds like a heavy metal version of amazing grace. This is enraging grace. That was horrible. But they were enraged by the simple concept of grace. That God would show his favor upon people that they would not choose that would not deserve it. But this is what true religion is. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7 8, many of you could could quote, for, for by grace are we saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The good news that Jesus has, has done by... By bringing the favor of God to earth that will touch every individual and and all parts of society by dying on a cross and raising again to new life to forgive us of our sins and to give us new life for eternity. It's not for those who have earned it, it's not for those who deserve it. But that's what grace is all about it's undeserved favor. And for them, it was on, this, is the, this was the uncomfortable part that was on the table because of grace. Here was the truth. Because God is gracious, that favor will be extended to many who quite simply don't look very Christian. Favor will be extended by God to many who just quite simply don't look very Christian. At least our concept of what Christianity is. Here's the more uncomfortable part, though, that's true of what Jesus was saying. Favor will not be extended to many who look very Christian or very religious. And to many, that's not just shocking, it's enraging. But to those who are truly one of Jesus, that your faith is truly on Jesus, not in our foundation, is not in what we have done to deserve God's favor, but in what Jesus has done. And we are simply putting our faith in the work that he has done on our behalf. It's it's something that we could not do of ourselves, not because we deserve it, but because simply by faith, he is the one who acted on our behalf. Uh, It's amazing. But that's grace. That I am shown the favor of God despite what I've done. But faith in what Jesus has done for me. Quite simply, guys, I just want to sum it up like this. This is religion. Grace is not for the deserving. But for the needy. You notice in in when he's reading that passage in Isaiah 61, the people that uh, favor is granted toward to It it describes, it's good news to the poor, liberty to captives, sight to blind, freedom or liberty to those who are oppressed. It's grace, favor of God that's unmerited, not for those who are deserving. It's for those who are needy. See, when it says poor and and captive, yes, I believe to an extent in society it's talking about literal poor and literal slaves, But it's also talking about spiritually because Naaman was well off and yet he was desperate. Are we needy before God? Do you understand your need, your desperation that there is nothing that you can do to deserve his favor, but only through what Jesus has done? Man, and we love that for ourselves and I'm just going to close with this because I'm running over time. Do we extend that same grace to others? Typically what happens is, yes, we're like, yes, well, we love grace from God, but man, do we hate to show that to other people because they just quite simply don't deserve it. Do we extend that same grace to others? And I'm going to ask this question because I've been wrestling with this. If someone who I hated, someone who didn't deserve it came to me for help out of desperation, would I be the king and say, no, nah, forget it? Or would I be the prophet? Who grants it anyway out of grace? Who do you need to show grace to? And it's that setting free that changes cities. It's that grace from God, favor from God, that changes societies, that defines the year of the Lord's favor simply grace let me pray God in heaven thank you so much that you are such a gracious God toward us Lord I pray that yes grace is not always warm and fuzzy grace is often uncomfortable it's often unexpected in fact it's often shocking to us because it's not what we would do it's not what we would plan It's it's not how I operate I operate on hey you get what you deserve but that's not what grace is Thank you that you are a gracious God because if I got what I deserved, I would not get you. I would not have what I have in life and yet you have freely given it to me. God, I pray that we would respond in grace as well. That we would not operate like these people. That we would be so changed by Jesus that we'd be set free from our own selfishness, from our own deserving attitude, our own ego, and that we would show grace to others and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. God, we love you. We pray for all of these things in your great name. Amen.